Well, good morning, friends. Uh, it is my bittersweet honor to invite you for the last time to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, which you can find uh, in the contents of the Bibles provided right in front of you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible or maybe aren't familiar with where, where everything is located, uh, we've put some Bibles right there in front of you that have a nice table of contents that will take you to Philippians. And then what we'd ask of you is to take that Bible with you as our gift to you so that, uh, so that you can read more about what you're going to hear this morning. And, and, and what we'd really love to do is to follow up with you and talk more about what you read there and what you hear t- uh, with us here together this morning. This, uh, this is our final week in this wonderful letter before we spend a couple of weeks starting next Sunday on the resurrection of Jesus. And then, and then after that, on to a series this spring on the book of Ruth that Jonathan Worsley is preparing for us. Uh, but for today... One more, for one more time, we get to enjoy the fruit of Paul's learned experience of his life trusting in Jesus. It models for those he's writing to how they can trust in Jesus through the ups and downs of what they're facing as well. In the passage we're going to look at together at the end of chapter 4 in Philippians, Paul is rounding off this most personal of his letters with a flurry of, of practical advice, uh, trying, to, trying to pass on as a kind of spiritual father what he's learned about life to his children in the faith. And the remarkable thing to me as we reach this point in this letter is that the subjects on Paul's mind, writing as he was from a Roman prison cell 2,000 years ago, are the same subjects that are on our minds today, here in Nashville in 2021. The same struggles that he wrote to help them with, we struggle with. The same needs, the same despair sometimes. And from Paul's perspective, the one and only possible hope. Last week, we looked at the problem of anxiety. This week, we're looking at the problem of contentment. That is, I guess I should say, our problem with feeling content. Like like anxiety, like we said last week about about that struggle, contentment is is a struggle for all of us. I, I I don't know anybody who doesn't have trouble with contentment. For some of you, your struggle with contentment comes from the fact that you're young. You know, you're on the front end of of a lot of major life transitions that you haven't yet experienced. For others, you're on the other side of those transitions and you're realizing that what everyone else uh, has told you as they got to those transitions and got past them before you did, you're, you're realizing they were right about it. Your marriage, your job, your kids, your house, your tenure, your salary, your growing investment accounts, whatever it might be, it didn't solve your problems. Do you feel like you're getting everything you want out of life? I bet you don't. Do you like feeling discontent? I bet you don't. Like anxiety, this is a struggle that makes us miserable. No one's nursing this problem, holding on to it because of its sweetness. None of us likes to feel this way. And just being told to be content really just makes things worse. We already know it's a problem. We don't want to stay like this. We need help. And that help is precisely what Paul gives us in our verses this morning. This is help based on his hard-won life experience, based on the timeless, rock-solid promises of the gospel. And, and, And it's what he frames as the secret of contentment, a secret that he's learned. I want to give it to you in two parts. 
Because that's what he does. Two steps this morning. Two sources of contentment for the Christian. In Christ, for your present, you have the gift of his friendship. That's source number one. That's part one of the secret. And in Christ, for your future, you have the promise of his provision. In Christ, for your present, you have the gift of his friendship. And in Christ, for your future, you have the promise of his provision. I want to read now the verses that we're going to unpack together in the rest of our time. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up reading in chapter 4, verse 10. And then I'm going to read through the, first, the, the, the remainder of the, of the chapter, through verse 23, and then come back to focus on verses 10 to 19. This, friends, is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, uh, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point one this morning. In Christ, for your present You have the gift of his friendship. That is the secret of Christian contentment. Do you notice how as soon as Paul tells them how he rejoiced when he received the help they sent him, he almost backs it down again so they don't get the wrong idea about his situation? He's grateful for their help. He rejoiced greatly that they revived their concern for him, that the gift made it through. But then as soon as he said that, it seems like what he wants them to know most of all is that he's fine. Verse 11. I've learned in... Whatever situation I'm in, to be content. And he would know, he's saying, because he's been through it all. He can speak from experience. I know how to be brought low, he says. I've been down there. And I know how to abound. I've been up there too. In any and every circumstance, he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's learned the secret. And he's saying that his secret is one that works no matter where you find yourself. What is that secret? It's not what we might expect, friends. In fact, what Paul is saying here 
in these few verses is already challenging a couple misconceptions we might have about contentment. I want to make sure you know what they are so you can recognize them for what they are and, and, and be done with them. First of all, the secret to contentment isn't actually changing your situation. I think in our hearts at a gut level, that's often what we believe. I don't know that many of us would really own up to it. We might not put that into words. We might not confess to it if challenged by a friend. But I think at least at a gut level, we often believe that things would be better, that we'd be more content if we could just change our situation. Sometimes we idolize a change of circumstances where we feel ourselves most hemmed in, maybe even suffocated by life. That's a common struggle, isn't it? Probably more than anywhere else in the world, at any other time in history, we have choices. We get used to those choices. We like the chance to customize our life with choices we make about what and where to eat or what to watch or what to drive or whatever. And, and when we feel like making a change, normally we can just do it. That's going to mean we struggle with discontent when we run into a situation that we can't customize into circumstances we can't easily change. And I know right now, friends, many of you do feel stuck in this way. Feel stuck perhaps in a in jobs that aren't fulfilling. Or maybe for you now, at this point, it looks like a kind of a career that's not fulfilling that you seem stuck in. Stuck in marriages that aren't joyful or loving. Stuck under the weight of responsibilities that zap all your energy and any hope you have of free time. Stuck in bodies that used to be healthy. It used to be a lot of fun to, to walk around in and to play in, but now seem to be breaking down with not a lot of hope of anything better in your future. And where you feel stuck, where you feel hemmed in, even suffocated by life, you're going to struggle with discontent and idolize a change of circumstances that might not be possible for you. You may also struggle with discontent when you idolize a change of circumstances that might match your life to somebody else's. You look around at what other people are living in, living with, and what they get to enjoy compared to what you do, and it can sometimes feed the sense that you'd be happier if you had what they had. Uh, on our own, if we could live in absolute isolation with exactly what we have now, in many ways, many of us would be more content. But uh, we can't stay isolated that's a pipe dream. We can't do that. We're often more like the kid who's thrilled with the board game he got for Christmas until he realizes that his cousin got an iPad or a PlayStation with all the virtual reality gear. It's easy for us to see that happen in kids who are totally fine until they see what the other kids have to play with. But friends, has this gotten any easier for you as you've grown? Whether you're discontent because you're feeling stuck in a situation you wouldn't have chosen, or because you're focused on what everybody else seems to be getting out of life and the gap between them and you, it's easy to assume that things would get better for you if you could just change your situation. And Paul is pushing back. Paul's saying, nah, no, no, I've got a secret that works no matter what your situation is. You don't have to change a thing to be content. But it's just at this point, guys. It's right here at this point where Paul challenges another common misconception we might have about contentment. The secret isn't in changing your situation. That's what he's telling us. But the secret also is not in accepting your situation. Making peace with what you have. See, when I hear what he said so far, in in verses uh, uh, 11 and 12, 
It's starting to sound to me a whole lot like what you might find on the self-help section of your local bookstore. When I hear him talk about the secret of being content, giving you, giving you a, a kind of equipoise, a stability, an unshakability in the face of plenty or want, hunger or bounty, whether you're brought low or riding high, I, I, my assumption is that here's a man who's just gotten a hold of his desires. He has, he's found his way to some sort of self-mastery. He's not just coasting along with his gut, always looking over the fence to what everybody else has got, what kind of green grass is over there. He's not just being led around by, by the waves of passion that he otherwise might be uh, consumed by. He's not assuming he'd be happier if he could change the situation. He's a minimalist now. He's figured out how to be cool with less. He's achieved some sort of state of mindful bliss. That's his secret. But no. No, Paul's, Paul's not learned to want less. Paul's not figured out how to be grateful for what he already has. Paul's not figured out how to stop comparing himself to others and focus instead on his own unique gifts and talents. Or to take an example from Paul's day, he's, he's not just figured out the, the secrets of the Stoics who taught that, you know, the, the best way to not get bowled over by life is just to want less, to be above it all, to not get too attached to this world where things come and go. Don't let your heart get broken by life. At first, it, it sounds like Paul's just some sort of pop psychologist here, but, but no, not at all. The secret's not in changing your situation. The secret's also not in just accepting your situation. Paul's secret is in Christ. Contentment doesn't come from wanting less, but from getting exactly what you want most. And so long as Paul has Jesus, Paul can face anything. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think one reason that Paul just alludes to this secret of being content and doesn't really elaborate on what it is is because he's written a whole letter about that. This letter. He's already been telling us this whole time about what his secret is. Think back to chapter 3. He, he looks back on his former life when he was so proud of all of his accomplishments, when he had the resume everyone else envied, when he was the one that made other people struggle with discontent compared to him. When, when that's who he was, he gave it all up. He, he considered it just a pile of rubbish compared to knowing Jesus so that he could gain Christ and be found in him not having his own righteousness not, not standing on his own two feet as a man in this world, but so that he could have the righteousness Jesus earned for him and so that he could attain to the resurrection of the dead just like Jesus did. That's his secret. He's got Jesus. Jesus is enough. So when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, He's giving us a line that doesn't belong in a pep talk or some sort of inspirational poster on the wall or a post-game interview of a Heisman quarterback who owes his success to Jesus. This verse has nothing to do with how much you can bench press or whether you hit all your quarterly goals every year. It's not a promise that you can do anything that you want because Christ will give you the strength to do it. This is a statement that belongs in the mouth of a man in a Roman prison with nothing who looks at his life and says, I've got all I need. I'm good because I've gained Christ. He's enough. I can face anything. The highs, the lows, the abounding, the want, the hunger. I can face all of it 
through Christ who strengthens me. In Christ, in your present, you have the gift of his friendship. That's enough. This week, uh, in a wonderful old book on contentment, I found an analogy that works well, I think, to describe what Paul has learned. The secret that he's learned about contentment, what he's gained when he gained Christ. This is from a book called uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by a Puritan writer named Jeremiah Burroughs. It's, it's a few hundred years old, so please do, uh, pardon me for the clunkiness of this language, but I think you'll see what, that he's on to something in this analogy. See if this doesn't sound like what Paul's just told us. Burroughs writes, To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of soul, through Christ in you, it's like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes, and perhaps at first on a cold morning, they feel cold. The the clothes feel cold. But after he's had them on a little while, they're warm. Now, how do they get warm? They were not near the fire. No, this came from the natural heat of his body. You see, this is exactly what Paul's talking about. Christ is the health in Paul's body, metaphorically speaking. He's the secret. He's the power source that warms Paul's circumstances, even the difficult ones. Paul's living in a terribly difficult situation. He's put on some clothes, some externals that are frigid, cold when he puts them on. But but in Christ, through the friendship he's gained there, through knowing him and the power of his resurrection, Paul's internal life has warmed up his external circumstances. The secret to contentment, no matter your present circumstances, is Jesus. Friends, I know that sometimes uh, what we crave when we're facing problems like discontent is some sort of strategy. It's something I can do. And I'm not saying there's no place for wisdom in the battle against discontent. I I think there's, there's, there's a wonderful place for wisdom. You can find the kind of wisdom you need for this battle in the Proverbs or in Ecclesiastes, as well as in a quick Google search about contentment. But Paul's secret just it, it isn't a, a tip or a set of steps to follow. Paul's really not giving you a strategy. The secret to Paul's contentment is a person. It's personal. It centers on a person whose daily friendship is the contentment you've been looking for. And the good news, the good news is this. Anybody can get in on it. Because this is not some sort of secret that you master over time through practice and discipline. Because it's not a secret that you can only learn from a proprietary source at the feet of a guru a world away. Because it's not a secret that depends on your insightfulness or your ability. This is a secret that you, without changing a thing, can enjoy today. Contentment in Christ is a miracle that's worked in you by the grace and power of God. So if you're struggling today with discontent, 
then what I hope you'll do with what Paul has just said to us is pray. This is a miracle worked in Paul's life. And the same God that worked it in him can work it in you. And the one practical strategy you need for today, more than anything else, is to cry out to him for his help. Pray this. God, give me a heart that craves Jesus above all. And then satisfy the craving you've given me. God, give me a heart that craves Jesus above all. And then satisfy the craving that you give me. The secret to contentment begins here. In Christ, for your present, you have the gift of his friendship. And that's enough. But it isn't enough to simply talk about the present. We talked so far only about our present circumstances and how to learn contentment in the middle of them, whether they're good or bad. And I think you know, focusing on the present is where we naturally, where we naturally start when we're talking about contentment. But I think we have, to, we have to be clear-eyed about the fact that contentment in life now, in the present even, depends a lot on how we view our future. It's tough to be content right now when your heart belongs to a version of your life that you don't have yet and may never get. When your heart is attached to something you've imagined for yourself, something that's possible but still not realized, you're going to struggle to be content now. I think the problem, that problem is maybe most noticeable in the first third or so of your life. You know, when you're putting a ton of your time and energy into preparing for what's next, how can you not, at that stage of your life, fixate on how school's going or on, on where you're going to train next or what sort of job you'll end up with on the backside of all that training or what sort of family you may have? It, it's a problem for all of us, though, for all of life. It doesn't end in the first third of your life. And for some of you guys, now the question isn't just whether you'll get exactly what you're hoping for in your wildest dreams. The question now is whether you'll have food to eat or a place to live or medical care for another year. That's hypothetical. That's where some of you are. How can you be content when you can't know or control the future? That's why we need this second part to the secret of contentment. In Christ, for your future, you have the promise of his provision. For now, you have the gift of his friendship. For your future, you have the promise of his provision. In verse 14, go back to the text with me. Paul starts laying out how, how kind it was of them to share his trouble and reminding them again of how, of how on brand this was for them, that, they, that they'd done this over and over. They were so faithful to him in supporting him when he's, when he's needed it over these years of their friendship. And sure, that's great. That's verses 14 and 15 and 16. But then just as soon, almost as soon as he begins to thank them for the gift that they'd sent to him and for how faithfully they'd supported him over the years, almost as soon as he's going there, he says, really he's most glad about the gift for their sake, not for his. I don't seek the gift. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then as soon as he's told them that, in verse 18, he starts talking about how good he is. I've received full payment and more. I'm good. I got what you sent from Epaphroditus. I'm all set. I'm well supplied. And think about what Paul's saying here. How can Paul say he's good without tacking on a plea for more? 
He's in prison. He's got no independent money. Him eating in prison depends on the gifts of, of, of well-intentioned friends like, like these Philippians. He's got nothing to rely on but gifts like theirs and not many places to expect those sorts of gifts to come from. And yet here, right after he's been given this gift, he barely seems grateful for it. He's only sort of thanking them. And he's certainly not pulling on their heartstrings. If anything, he's talking down his need, not, not asking for more. How can he face his future with such confidence and so little to go on? Where did he get this kind of contentment? The key, friends, is in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Facing the future, Paul knows, and you can know, that God has promised to give you what you need when you need it. My God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's content where he is, not knowing where next month's food will come from, and not begging the Philippians for more of what they've just sent him, because he trusts the promise of God. He knows that what the Philippians sent really wasn't between him and them. That was God providing for him, and God will do it again. And he wants for them, in verse 19, and for us, the same source of contentment that he's tapped into. Facing the future, contentment only comes from knowing God will give me what I need when I need it. And that holds, friends, both for this life and the life to come. Let me tell tell you why. We need that assurance both in this life and in the life to come. In this life, part of me wishes that God would just go ahead and give me everything I'm ever going to need right now, up front, all at once. You know, kind of like a, a trust fund where at least the payments are scheduled and there's a balance there that I, can, that I can look at whenever I'm feeling uneasy. Sometimes that seems like the kind of contentment I'm craving. But God doesn't work like that. Paul promises that God will supply every need. That he will provide what you need when you need it. But that provision will come according to his wisdom and his love in the right way at the right time. And when, I, when I hear Paul say that, I'm thinking immediately back to Israel's story. I'm thinking about Israel back wandering around in the wilderness after God had delivered them from Egypt, but before God had delivered them the promised land, before they had a place where they could plant their own crops and come to, and come to depend on the annual seasons and, and whatever, before they could bank on anything, they lived hand to mouth based on food God provided to them from the sky every day. They couldn't stockpile it either. They tried to collect some of that bread and keep it for themselves. They wanted to bank on their security for tomorrow. It turned out. Every night, God confronted them with the same test of faith. They went to sleep with nothing. And they wouldn't have anything the next day unless God decided to give them something all over again, just like he had. Sometimes when I think back on that story, it seems cruel to me. Like God's just trying to keep them off balance. Just toying with them. Unsteady and unsafe. And maybe that's how it seems to you that he's treating you. As you look ahead and things seem cloudy and you are more aware than ever of your lack of control. 
But friends, what God was teaching Israel and what, what Paul has learned by this point in his life, what he's teaching us is that the only safety that there is, the only safety for your soul is in knowing that God holds your future and has promised to provide for you. God is safety. By, by withholding what we'll need until we need it, God is keeping us trusting in him. And God is protecting us from trusting in his gifts. God's gifts are good, but they are terrible gods. When we trust them, we fall. God knows this, and he loves us. He won't let us settle for making idols out of the things that he gives us. But he has promised to provide for every need, for needs that he knows better than we do. And we can trust him only when we do will we know deep and lasting contentment. I, I, um, I came across a, a wonderful example of this, friends, in, in a book that uh, our staff read together uh, uh, a few months back, a book about singleness and myths about it, things that are often misunderstood about it by a single man named Sam Albury, a pastor uh, who actually now pastors at a church here in Nashville. Sam was in this chapter, just really transparently and honestly talking about the struggle of his own singleness, which sometimes feels like a gift and sometimes to him feels like a burden. And as he's, as he's aged as a single man, he talked about the, 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 the extra burden of realizing this is now probably for me a long-term thing. He talked about how his, his anxieties could tend to spin out futures for himself of worst-case scenarios that would come as a result of his singleness. And he talked about the, the practical advice a friend gave him that changed how he saw it. A tool that this friend put into his hand for when his mind starts to spin out these possible futures. This friend told him, God doesn't give us hypothetical grace, but only actual grace. When we imagine all those worst case scenarios, we are imagining them without factoring in the presence and grace of God that would be there if they actually happened. We're spinning out futures that are godless. That does nobody any good. If these worst case scenarios come to pass, he'll be there for me. He'll give me exactly what I need, but not until I need it. My only path to contentment is in trusting him now. We have to trust him for what we'll need in this life. He will provide. He's promised to. And we must trust him to provide what we will need in the life to come. Yes, in this life, for our futures here, we have to tr trust the promise that he'll provide. But, but we're going to need more than what he provides in this life. Paul, Paul is always thinking ahead. Paul always has more than just this world on his mind. I mean, he cares about this life. But his heart belongs to the life to come. His strength and resilience in this life right now, the kind of strength that's, that's, that's given him such joy even in a terrible situation, it's a strength that comes from a clear vision and a concrete hope in the world to come. And that's why he rounds off this promise in verse 19, this promise that God will provide for every need with, the, with these words. He will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He'll supply your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The measure of what you can depend on God to provide is what God has given to his son. In the heaven where our true citizenship belongs, where our gracious Savior is already exalted, the heaven from which He will one day come for us. In this heaven there is a glory waiting that God has promised will be ours. And knowing that this is what God has promised to His people is an incredibly powerful source of contentment now. See, we want our hearts tethered to what God has promised us, not what is possible for us. What is possible in this life is where we often focus, isn't it? What may happen, what we hope will happen. And no matter how sweet or enjoyable those possibilities might be, no matter how on their own, like, worthy of hope and, and, and planning and, and, and effort, there are still just possibilities. And if we give our heart to what God hasn't promised to give us, we've given it to some other God. Contentment will only ever come when we focus on what, what He's promised us. Let me, can I just give you a really personal example? From my own life as a pastor, I hope you've realized by now uh, in this struggle or because you're close to a pastor somewhere that, that pastors struggle with contentment too. We don't have this... We don't have this figured out any more than you do other than just depending on what's been put right here in front of us by God's word. And it's a daily fight. And sometimes for us as pastors, our struggle with contentment can be centered on our churches and where we happen to be in a given season compared to where we want to be. Uh, Many of you know that I first became a pastor as part of a team planting a brand new congregation in the Vanderbilt area. And when we were first making our plans uh, for, 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 for starting this church, we attended a bunch of trainings uh, we, we read a lot of manuals about how to get off to a good start. And some of the most consistent advice we got was to come up with a five or ten year set of goals for what we hope to become. That was super consistent advice. Everywhere we looked, it seemed like that's what we were being told to do. How many people do you want to reach? What kind of facilities do you want to own or build? What's your target for an annual budget for the size of your staff or whatever else? You get, you get the idea. Measurables. And I remember us thinking that through talking it out, and, and just realizing pretty quick that this, this is really well-meaning advice, but it's laced with an unintended deadly poison. We could tell how quickly we would be tempted to give our hearts to a church that God hadn't given us yet, to a church that God hadn't promised to give us, to basically marry that church rather than the one that he had already given us. Friends, that, that threat is still out there in front of me right now today. It's possible that a hundred years from now, our church will still be going. It's possible that we may reach deep roots down into this neighborhood, that we may send missionaries from our church all over the world. It's possible that we'll see our city flourish in beautiful ways as our people love and serve their neighbors in Jesus' name. All of that is possible. I pray that all of that comes to pass. We're going to work on it. But to keep moving... To love the church we have now, as we are, I have to focus on what's been promised to me, to us. God has promised that 
Whatever else becomes of us, whether we make it another year or another hundred years, he will bring every one of his children safely to glory. And he'll use our church, our humble little weekly gatherings around his word, fueling our lives of love for one another. He'll use our church to get us there. He has promised that what we're doing here today is just a faint echo of what we'll do together forever in glory. We're going to sing to him with voices not limited like ours are here and hearts not divided between good things and, and, the, and, and the, the, the desires of our flesh. One day we'll worship him where he is and we'll be looking good on that day despite ourselves because we'll be dressed in Jesus' righteousness. We'll be holy just like him. We'll be free of sin and sorrow and every fear that stains our lives now. That's promised. That's coming. And that's where our life together is headed. What a gift to think about that as we move forward with where we are right now. Not knowing what else may become of us here in this life. Friends, it's possible that God will give you the family you desire, for example. A spouse, a child, more children, more grandchildren. Those are beautiful gifts. It's possible. It's not wrong to hope for these things. But contentment will only come when your heart belongs to His promise. What He's promised you is a family in which He is your loving Father. In which Christ, His Son, is your brother who came for you, who died for you, who lives again to make sure you have what you need. In which this church is your extended family of brothers and sisters, meaning you'll never ever be alone. That's promised. Focus there, not on what's possible if you want contentment. It's possible, friends, that you could live a long life, that you could dodge cancer and major disease along with your closest loved ones. That's possible. But what's promised is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That everyone who believes in Him will never die. That though you may die even tomorrow, even painfully, yet you will live. When we focus on, on what God has promised, when our hearts belong to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus that we're banking on, verse 19, something ironic begins to shape up inside of us. Here's how Jeremiah Burroughs put it. You have never learned the mystery of contentment unless it may be said of you that just as you are the most contented man, so you are also the most unsatisfied man in the world. When a Christian's heart is fastened to what God has promised, Burroughs continued, if he had the quintessence of all the excellences of all the creatures in the world, it could not satisfy him. That's his way of saying that even if you had the combined wealth of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, it would not be enough for you, Christian. And yet, Burroughs writes, this man can sing and be merry and joyful when he has only a crust of bread and a little water in the world. Does that sound like Paul? Satisfied with anything. Not satisfied by anything. All the money in the world won't provide for your every need. Only God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus could do that. Nothing else will be able to satisfy the craving inside you. And that is exactly the craving God has promised to satisfy in glory. So perhaps the most practical move you've got in your battle for contentment may be to read and think and dream and pray about heaven because that's where you're headed father we pray to you now 
to give us hearts that love what you've promised more than we love the possibilities our minds imagine. That you would make us contentment, make our contentment something that, that, that glorifies you. Because it tells the truth about how wonderfully satisfying you are. I pray that by your word today, you would do this miracle in our hearts and that through our relationships with one another, you would stoke these fires and protect us from from putting our hopes in what cannot possibly deliver. And we pray that you will provide for every one of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen.